Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We have a real treat today, folks. Uh, Whitney Elkins Hutton is joining us, the Director of Investor Education at PassiveInvesting.com, founder of Ash Wealth. Whitney has built an absolutely remarkable portfolio uh, through a host of different partnership structures. Uh, Whitney's involved in over $700 million in real estate, over 5,000 residential units, uh, everything from SFRs to assisted living, over 1,400 self-storage units in eight states. Whitney, it's an absolute pleasure to, to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, James. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. So um, before we we jump in, I'm, I'm curious, just can you give us a, a few minute context on history, right? People don't wake up with portfolios like this. So uh, how did you how did you first come to, if you will, get the real estate bug? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I uh, never went to school for real estate. I went to school actually, um, you know, graduated with a degree in biochemistry. My whole intent was going to med school and I did. I did a couple years of med school and really wanted to go into public health. That was like my end all be all, like where I thought I'd spend the rest of my career. And, you know, if you think about the old movie Outbreak or the movie Contagion, I mean, that was like where I, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there glued to the television, like eating popcorn. And everybody else is like, this is like nuts. I can't imagine a world like this. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that was my thing. Right. Um, so uh, I did, I um, transitioned out of med school into public health and um, spent several years um, working in infectious disease, public health. And then 9-11 happened. And after that, um, I was working on the contract with the CDC. We were you know, the United States as a whole was scrambling to educate its, um, you know, health infrastructure on how to deal with anthrax and smallpox. That was a huge threat. I don't know if, if people remember the anthrax threats, and uh, you know, being meant, sent in the mail. Yeah, you know. the envelopes were showing up, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, that was um, a small part of what the training I was um, to do. And I also handled chemical and biological um, and radiological education as well. But anyways, um, you know, kept me traveling, kept me extremely busy, but I needed a place to live. And I had a significant other at the time. And we decided we we're going to buy a house together. Uh, you know, interest, I mean, this is 2006. So, you know, by this time, when we're buying the house, interest rates are, you know, you just have to fog a mirror and you can get a loan. And uh, <laughs> wild west of lending. And I, I mean, I, there's probably no way that somebody should have given me a loan, but you know, that was my lucky break back then. And I bought a house and it needed a rehab. Um, my realtor actually put the book, um, cash flow, or excuse me, Rich Dad, Poor Dad in my hand. And I'm pretty sure I screwed it up, honestly. Um, but I was like, okay, great. I'll buy a house and we'll do the rehab ourselves. And um, the relationship fell apart and I had the house. And, you know, here I was traveling out of state 80 hours a week and I had a house that needed a rehab. So I stuffed it full of roommates, um, paid my friends and 
pizza and sushi to help me like do tiling and drywall, electrical, plumbing. I mean, you know, I can't believe the people who bought the house. Um, you know, they, they it passed inspection. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I mean, I did educate myself properly on that. I mean, there were some, you know, we had some goofs up, goof ups, but um, sold the house 11 months later for a $52,000 profit. And that's when I realized I actually hadn't been paying for any of my expenses for 11 months. I'm like, oh my gosh, how many of these projects could I possibly do? Um, and, and the whole point of me selling the house is because I was traveling so much. I was like, I, I can't deal with the house. I need to get out from underneath it. And then as soon as I sold it, I'm like, oh, wait, <laughs> this might be my ticket to freedom. And so uh, anyways, I, you know, I, my second project did not go so well. And I know many listeners here might have heard the story that I've told on a few podcasts where a bus fell into the roof of the property. It was a mountain home. Well, that, you know, gravity took over. and. Uh, Anyways, uh, I did got out from underneath that one and did a few more projects with my husband. He thought I was totally crazy. And I'm like, no, I got it all figured out now. Um, and we did. We did really well at building up pockets of equity. We also took advantage of what we call, you know, the IRS calls the 121 exclusion. So we were able to capture $250,000 tax-free individually or $500,000 tax-free in gains as a couple. And so we just kept um, having our investment babies make babies and continue to grow their portfolio. And then it dawned on us one day, we're like, how are people becoming financially free? Like having a monthly income on this, I can't imagine it. And that's when we like had to slap ourselves in the head and we're like, oh, you'll hold on to the property. <laughs> and that's where we combined our skills of rehab with rentals and what's now known commonly as the Burr strategy. And um, we built up a portfolio of about 30 single family homes that way. And then I hit my next ceiling of achievement. I wanted to stay at home with our child and take care of you know, some ailing family members. And um, my husband was like, well, I want that too. And I'm like, no, no, we're not <laughs> doing 80 single family properties. We've got to find a different way to scale. And that's when we transitioned into multifamily real estate. And we went into it both actively and passively at the same time. And it's been a wonderful ride um, since we made that uh, transition. So the, 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 the infamous second deal that, that almost really tanked you, right? That, that second deal, uh, how close really to the edge were you of, of packing it in and, and, and calling this a wrap? Oh, as far as like real estate in general? Yeah. Um, I was, uh, one phone call away with my mom. Wow. I mean, I was there. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, you know, uh, the, the market was changing. I mean, there was a lot of things that I did wrong on that property. One I bought in the mountain town. I ignored a lot of the immutable laws of real estate. Number one, location, location, location. Two, I didn't understand who I would be really selling this property to. This was the, this was a vanity property. This was the one that I wanted. Um, and it was a little mountain home. It had 19 steps up to the front porch, but it's, and it was in a city that was largely retirement. Um, people who came there to retire. So I had so many, um, you know, you know, retirees coming to the property and they're like, well, the pictures look great, but you, you, you failed to mention the 19 steps <laughs> up to the front, to the deck. And I mean, I had people actually stop halfway up the stairs, you know, cause it's at altitude and they're like, no, nah, no, nah, we're done. Like, I'm not even going to go in. Um, so it took me a, a year to sell the property. And, and I guess the third mistake that I made is that I actually had a decent contract on the table within two weeks of listing it. 
And I foolishly thought I could get a lot more. Um, and, and I ignored like all the signals that were coming at me. And I, I sat on the property for a year, went through, you know, three or four realtors and eventually sold it for the exact same dollar amount a year later. Wow. So, uh, a frequent, um, mistake, I guess that, uh, on the real estate brokerage side, we see this quite a bit and it, it seems like you're, you're just brokering the client, but you're really not. Oftentimes your first offer is your best offer. Um, and, and it's regardless of the timeline, if you're hitting the goals that you've set on that particular property, it's probably a, a good idea to pull those triggers. So you were really at the edge of possibly saying, this isn't for me, I'm going to move on. Um, Oh my gosh. Well, what sent me over the edge is that in the, my realtor, um, in, in during the inspection phase, it had been identified the retaining wall on the backside of the property was failing. Um, now, I, I argued that it was actually the weight of my neighbor's school bus that was causing the retaining wall to fail and just move it, right? Because as soon as she moved it to down one house, that retaining wall started to fail. Um, my realtor had the foresight to make me sign a, an amendment saying that I would come with $6,000 at closing to keep the deal together. And essentially that locked everybody in. And then, you know, here I am, like I had waited a year, got the same offer. And I'm like, I'm giving away another $6,000. I was kicking and screaming, but I signed it. And I'm so glad I did. Cause that, you know, the, I think by the time they were all in, it was, the buyer had to put up, I think, another 24 in order to complete the wall that they wanted. And in engineering wow. phase, long story short, like um, if the deal hadn't hold, held together, like I, I was like upside down for sure. <laughs> wow. So uh, any other influences at that point in your life that, that, you know, family members or mentors that were were significant investors in real estate? No, not at the time. Um, my grandfather, actually, he was the one that lent me my down payment on my first property. And he um, he knew nothing really about real estate other than buying his primary properties. Uh, and I would say both of my grandfathers, but they they really just said, you know, like, you know, you're not out of the game. You know, if you really want to do this, like, just just go do it. Like they were, they were just they had such faith in me, you know. Whereas I, I remember multiple conversations with my mom. You know, she's her little daughter. You know, is risking financial security, right? You know, I have a daughter too, and I I, I have to check myself. I'm all the time saying, "Be safe, be careful," and that's really not the language I should be using. Whereas my grandfathers were like, "You're not out. Dust yourself off. Get back up. Get back in the game." <laughs> Wow. Wow. So uh, that kind of a, a quantum leap to where you are today, uh, where do you, where do you even begin when, when advising uh, clients, customers, uh, where do you even begin putting the framework together for, Hey, I want to you know, reach these goals uh, and, and, and defining those goals. Where do you start? Well, in my journey, it, it really started, um, you know, at the end of 2016. I mean, there was some political pressure. My husband works for the government and there was some political pressures 
that we were seeing are, I would say more over kind of threats, you know, empty threats that um, the pension plans might go away with the incoming administration. And we were, that was, you know, whether they did or didn't, that was, that's irrelevant. What we just realized at that point in time, it doesn't matter who's in office, we're not in charge of our own destiny. So for, for one, to start off, you have to have, I wish people were more motivated by pleasure you know, to achieve something lofty and, and improve their lives from a, a place of pleasure. But it's often identifying a pain point that you need to escape from is probably the first thing that um, people resonate with, right? Because we don't want to be in pain. So we will be motivated faster to figure out an answer if there's an a pain. I mean, how many times have you, you know, maybe come across a friend or family member that um, they have a nagging pain or they know that they should go get their knee checked out or the back checked out. And it's not even until that they can't sleep anymore. It just totally gets really bad that they actually go to the doctor. Sure. Unfortunately, that's what we see pretty often in this arena. And for, for us, we tried to figure it out. Um, we tried to DIY it for a while. And then, you know, two properties in, I, or actually four properties in, I was like, I need help. I need a lot of help. I need somebody to sit down with me um, and and help me look through all my different because we knew we had the money. We just you know stuck a lot of it in our retirement accounts and we didn't have access to it. And so we needed somebody to help us that knew more than we did, who had achieved what at that time that we wanted to achieve to help us show essentially like lay out the plan and it shows how to place the chess pieces. And so we hired a financial coach, um, Chris Miles with Money Ripples. I mean, I, you know, he's still in business. <laughs> so, you know, if you guys need a contact, reach out to me. Um, but he's, he was amazing at helping us um, understand like how the game is played and how we could leverage our current resources in order to achieve our goals. And the process with Chris um, does Chris help you define even re really what the goals are? I find that uh, a lot of folks struggle with even defining what, what is that? We hear financial freedom thrown around all the time, right? But what, what does that really mean? What does that mean to me and what it means to you? Maybe two entirely different things. And without a, a clear uh, goals, I think it may be really a, a challenge to begin to even put that map together. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So the end point is the freedom, right? So like you said, we hear financial freedom, you know, touted quite often. Um, the other freedoms are time freedom, location independence, location freedom, um, freedom of choice, and then freedom to make an impact. Okay. So one of those motivators, like when you can identify the pain, like, you know, that's probably the reason why you're getting started in real estate, but what's going to keep you in real estate for the long term, it's going to be one of those freedoms. You're trying to go after one of those. Now, there's milestones along the way, right? I think where um, a lot of investors kind of do themselves a disservice is they're say, "I want financial freedom," right? But that's that's the fifth or sixth step. The first step is actually get enough income coming in to have financial security, where you can. You know, make sure that you're not going to lose the house. The heat stays on, the food stays on the table. I mean, we're talking basics, okay? And maybe that only like can last the financial security that that dollar amount coming in only lasts six months, okay? Then the next phase after that is learning how to create financial uh, vitality. We've got our basic needs met now. Like maybe I want to go out to dinner and buy like a couple clothes and have nice gifts, right? 
that's vitality. Okay. Like how, you know, that's, you have enough money coming in from your investments to last, to give you a good life for about a year. Right. Then we get into what is often called the fire financial independence. Okay. That's where your assets are giving you enough income coming in on a regular basis in perpetuity. Okay. Notice the first two were just for short little time blocks, six, 12 months, right? Like they're buffers. And those are milestones that you have to hit along the way until you hit financial independence. And then we get into our freedoms, like financial freedom, which is they cover the lifestyle that you desire. And then absolute freedom where your assets, you know, cover pretty much doing whatever you want with whoever, whoever you want, whenever you want. So the, again, the, the, the scale uh, at which you've accelerated your, your portfolio uh, is it's kind of mind boggling. So was this a a byproduct of reinvesting dividends or was there additional monies that were were Mm -hmm. pumped into the portfolio at one point or another? How how did you begin to pull that framework together? Yeah. So um, several different ways. Uh, And this is, I I think this is where people see uh, it's like an iceberg, right? There's only so much of it above water and that's what people see. It's the war, all, all the work that went into it below the water. That's where the real like juicy gems lie. And so um, number one, remember we had been doing, utilizing our, um, you know, our ability to buy a primary property and move every two years to trigger the 121 exclusion for our taxes. So we were pulling in up to 250 to $500,000 tax-free. Now, I'm not saying we did that with every property, but we were buying properties that needed rehab. They needed love. Um, we weren't buying the nice, pretty property, the all done property with the garden in place and the exact area we wanted to live in. No, we were very strategic on how we were buying our initial properties where it was just my husband and I. Actually, we're still, this is a green screen, by the way. <laughs> this is my dream home. Um, but we're still in, we still do that. We're still in one of our rentals uh, or not one of our rentals, but one of our properties that we bought to, um, you know, uh, you know, do that type of strategy too. So we still utilize that. Um, number two, we um, decreased our, we took a look at our expenses and um, really strove to only live off of one income. So we were stashing one other entire income aside to build up our savings. Okay, so we've got our our value that we're creating in our houses combined with you know you know stashing away an extra like you know eighty to hundred thousand dollars a year from somebody else's income. We did that for ten years, so that gives you a nice like little nest egg to begin with. Okay, so the the first few years were painful. Now it's like like clockwork, right? You know, hard life now, easy night, easy life later. And then when we started investing in our rentals. You know, we made that switch to actually hold on to the to the the rehabs we were doing. Um, we did two things. One, we harvested all the cash flow. Again, we remember we were doing a burr type strategy, so we weren't leaving our own capital in the property. We were refinancing out as much as we could once we got that tenant in place. After we got it rehabbed and the tenant in place, we were getting as much as our capital back out as possible. So we weren't leaving it in the property. We were forcing the equity on the property. And then whatever cash flow we got, we didn't consume it. We reinvested it back into the business um, and continued to amplify our returns. And then we were still doing a little bit of flipping on the side to... um, you know, leveraging our team. When we didn't have a property that was going through rehab, we would try to lock down a flip to keep our team busy. 
Um, so they weren't like disappearing on us and going to do other projects with other investors. And so that's a lot. And you don't have to pull all of those levers at once. Even just pulling one of those levers can be so impactful to somebody's financial position. So the the team, I assume you're you're referencing uh, contractors and and folks that are involved in that entire BRRRR process. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, we actually hired. We did a majority of our BRRRRs through our um, our property management company. So we hired a property manager who specifically had a contracting side of their business. Got it. So for the the audience to to follow along here, the 121 exclusion, could you spend a minute or two on that in layman's terms, just so folks understand that opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing that draws a lot of investors to real estate is, um, aside from cash flow and the potential of of natural or forced um, equity positions, appreciation, is tax benefits, right? Um, The IRS gives us this lovely um, ability to, I mean, depreciation, leverage depreciation to where we can offset the income on the property, but also uh, when we want to reposition, sell the property, we can put it into what we call a 1031 exchange. And we essentially are kicking the can down the road on paying taxes on the gains of that property. Now, you as a common, you know, somebody who just has their primary residence actually has the same, a similar type of benefit. And so the 1031 is called the 1031 because of the tax code. That's the number of the tax code. The 121 is the number of the tax code for this thing that's available to all of us who own our primary residence. And that if I, all I have to do is live in my property two of the last five years, and then I can sell it for a profit. And as an individual person, I get to keep 250,000 in gains tax-free or if I'm married, I can keep up to $500,000 in gains tax-free. So 250 per spouse or per partner, domestic partner. So that's it. And then I can go reinvest in my next property. So that's, an, or, or multiple properties, right? That's where, you know, it becomes extremely powerful. You know, you get one and, you know, say you make a hundred or $200,000. Now you can, you know, have your investment babies make babies and you can split that. Right. And now you start getting, you know, after two or three cycles, you have the exponential growth there. So the uh, the 1031 exchange uh, that we talk about quite, quite often on the show um, is a, a, a time tested vehicle uh, where you're you're allowed to ha- execute a like like kind exchange through an intermediary. Uh, and to essentially, as as Whitney said, kind of kick the can down the road where you're not paying tax in that moment, which allows you to acquire a larger property and to scale and so on. So in the 121, uh, is it still the same process? Do you go through a, an exchange intermediary? No, no, you can outright sell the property. So you don't have to exchange it for like property. You can literally sell the property and go buy a boat or go travel the world. You can do whatever you want. Wow. However, you know, as an investor who's looking to build their portfolio, I would highly suggest reinvesting back in the in the business to scale a property. Wow. So in 2018, you founded Ash Wealth and the Investor Accelerator Program. Could you talk a little bit about the, the genesis of that and, and what exactly you can expect to find there? 
Yeah, definitely. So, you know, so my work at PassiveInvesting.com is we're a multifamily, um, you know, or excuse me, a private equity firm, and we specialize in multifamily self-storage and car wash syndications. We also specialize in real estate debt. Not everybody can jump right there. Right. You know, um, you know, some people need some sort of like glide path into real estate and, you know, maybe they don't have like 50, 100, 200,000 dollars to invest. How do they get started? And that's really where Ash Wealth comes in is that I work with investors who are looking to get into their first, you know, few properties, you know, uh, and not just one rental. You know, I look for people that are looking to scale to 10 to 20 units within a couple of years, but really get that 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 um, that initial portfolio kicked off. Uh, and I help them leverage, you know, largely single family and one to four unit, um, you know, type of real estate. So, you know, people come into the program and the investor accelerator program, it's a mastermind and, you know, they're either they're house hacking to, um, you know, either them, they themselves to, you know, build up more of a down payment or they're buying a multi-unit property, living in one unit and renting out the others. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, I help people walk through turnkey investing as well as how to do a burr type strategy and or leverage all of these together. Um, that's really powerful. Yeah. So I'm 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 curious on, on the surface, uh, those asset classes seem to to be very, very, very different. Um, car washes and self storage. Um, I'm, I'm not seeing on the surface the synergies there. What What are the connections and why those asset classes? Yeah, I mean, so you know, just to back it up a little bit with the multifamily real estate, it's residential, right? You know, so you know, there's a roof over somebody's head. Now with uh, multifamily real estate, you know, they're living in you know uh, maybe one one bedroom, one bath, two bedroom, one bath, three bedroom, two bath type of property. They may not have a garage. Self-storage is a natural kind of partner to multifamily real estate. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, so, and, and it's one of the, it's kind of, it's in an infancy phase right now, as far as like consolidation. Um, it, it's ripe for disruption, disruption right now. It's, um, it's also a great way for people to diversify their portfolios. So they're uncorrelated. So multifamily might, you know, um, has a different real estate cycle than self-storage. Car washes, I call that more of a business type of driven or business-driven real estate. Whereas you're buying the way we buy them at passiveinvesting.com is that we're looking to take over in a very specific type of car wash, which is an express car wash. Think of those nice long tunnels with the beautiful lights. You know, you can, you know, get 40, you know, 60 cars going through like in a very short time period. We looked to buy those type of properties because um, a larger, again, like self-storage, this, this industry is ripe for disruption. Um, most of the properties that are owned um, by most of the owners of self-storage and car washes are still mom and pop owners. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to, you know, to build these properties, put in a lot of, you know, a lot of operational efficiencies rebrand them and then package them up for a nice exit to say like a REIT or something like that, maybe even IPO. So. Wow. So you're actually, you're, you're not acquiring um, car washes that have uh, a land lease, for example, on it. And you're specking from there. You're actually buying it for the business to create operational efficiencies bundle it up and then sell it at a cap rate at some point down the road to a larger institution. 
Yeah. So we're looking to scale it about 100 to 100 to 150 units um, that way. Now, it doesn't say we we do have some opportunities where we are looking at land for development, but a large portion of the portfolio, we are specifically looking to buy existing you know, car washes. How did you stumble upon um, car washes, for example, as a a market segment that was was ripe for disruption. I happened to stumble into self storage, and I'll tie that together after after this comment. But where where and how did car washes come into play? Yeah, that's really a brainchild of our founders. So um, Dan Hanford, Danny Randozo, and Brandon Abbott. And Brandon Abbott, you know, is the uh, the founder, kind of our go to founder on the car washes. And I think you know. One of the risks of today's environment, you know, for investors that are, you know, getting in any sort of investing, whether it's single family or syndications, they're chasing yield. And that's not always the safe thing to do. Car washes are a unique thing because it is a business that has very strong cash flow to it. And there's um, still, you know, there's uh, so many different levers that we can pull there to supercharge the cash flow on the on the business side of things. So that is a nice, a nice yield play for a lot of investors. And I think that was just kind of a natural progression that we added it to our portfolio. So we, we uh, do a good bit of commercial real estate here as well, um, retail specifically. And as we went through the retail apocalypse as the, the rest of the world did, right? Uh, post 2008 and really before 2008, we started to see uh, the model was changing. Uh, we We felt and we found that these sites that were previously, um, you know, occupied by a, a pretty healthy mix of apparel and, and some light service retail, uh, some limited food and beverage um, started to encounter these massive vacancies, right? As as tenants started to trade uh, bricks in for clicks and, and really start to move to the online model, um, there were these centers that Previously, you had a line of tenants for. Uh, now we, we were faced with these new challenges, and we found that there was an interesting um, model where the self storage um, pattern fell into that light retail pattern, and uh, people were looking for it almost as a uh, to be included as part of the convenience of their weekly things that they're doing. They were hitting the self storage locker. Uh, and we had this preconceived notion, self-storage, you know, at the end of an industrial road, uh, you know, poorly lit, not in the best location. And as we started to tinker with moving self-storage into really the center of shopping centers, uh, it clicked and it, it, it started to align with the, the strategy and, and we were able to fill some significant spaces with these self-storage units. Um, so with car washes, uh, I find it fascinating that there was the opportunity and tie-in there. So when working with with you, Whitney, are are you training people uh, or and 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 schooling people on how to go find those car washes that need that repositioning, or is it let's invest with Whitney and then Whitney goes and and makes the acquisitions and and does the whole takedown from there. Number two. Number two. Yeah. So, um, you know, we do have our uh, multifamily investor nation um, and our self-storage investor nation um, channels that are, you know, kind of sister channels of 
um, passiveinvesting.com. So for somebody who, you know, wants to kind of, you know, pick the, our founders brains on, you know, how they got started in multifamily and what to look for and want to be more on the active side, we have those channels for them to access. I would imagine at some point in time, we would open up a channel for car washes as well. Cause it, we do get a lot of like inquiries about that. Um, but you know, for right now, um, you know, what I offer, what I help and ed- educate investors on is on the passive side, like how can you incorporate these type of assets into your portfolio to build your passive income, build long-term generational wealth, diversify your portfolio and take advantage of the um, tax benefits from them. Got it. So uh, inflation, uh, right, is the, it's the new burr. Everyone's talking about <laughs> inflation, right? House hacking, inflation, burr. Um that presents a lot of interesting challenges in in the real estate world, but it also presents opportunity. So uh, what was once the holy grail for a lot of our investors, uh, long-term corporate signatures, uh, fixed increases uh, in a a world where inflation is outpacing those fixed increases, you're, you're all of a sudden in a new paradigm where technically, you're losing value year over year, right? Because your tenants are uh, the the best increases you're going to get from from any tenant of significant signature is two to three percent every year, if not ten percent every five, right? That's the best you're going to get. And when inflation's at eight nine percent, uh, that creates a, a a whole new set of challenges. So, could you talk a little bit about uh, the multifamilies and self storage in particular? how that really does provide quite a hedge against inflation. Yeah, definitely. So, and it's not so much that the real estate asset classes provide the hedge against the inflation, it's the underlying principles of the real estate classes that provide the hedge. So, you know, number one, both classes, you know, um, provide capital preservation. You're investing in a hard real estate asset, right? Um, the you know the the building has value that land has value to it it will never go to zero unlike unlike some stocks right some businesses have gone to zero um you know they we're investing in assets that have cash flow at day one okay um, the more cash flow the better right now with asset prices soaring um you know rents haven't caught up to those asset prices, um, you know, that that cash flow is a little bit compressed, but it, we always look for assets that cash flow now. Okay, that tells us that there's a little bit of stabilization in the market. We have wiggle room with our rents um, and it just provides, you know, a, a layer of security. And, and I can dive in any one of these pillar, wealth pillars deeper because there's things that you want to look for in a deal to ensure that the cash flow is really going to be protected. Um, and then you have, you know, I look for an equity pillar in, um, in my deals. You know, um, is the property, the multifamily or self-storage in a growth market, right? Am I going to be kind of insulated with um, populations growing, incomes growing, jobs growing, jobs being diversified, good employers coming in? Okay, that's all going to, crime going down, vacancy going down, you know, favorable tax laws, favorable landlord laws, right? I'm stacking all those in my favor. And then I'm also looking for the tax benefits on the property. And that's why multifamily and self-storage are so um, good because I get, a, I get a return based on the tax benefits, right? I get to leverage a 27 and a half year depreciation schedule in multifamily. I get to leverage a 39 year depreciation schedule in self-storage. 
I can do a cost segregation analysis on either one of those properties and accelerate whatever depreciates in 20 years or less to the first five years of the project. So I'm looking for operators that do that. And I'm these both of these businesses, as my expenses increase, you know, with taxes, um, uh, insurance, you know, different types of costs, I can those also can be passed through to the tenant, you know, like you say, the signature, who's signing on the line. Now with multifamily, my lease is generally a year. So I can reset that. I can reevaluate every single year. With self-storage, I'm resetting that every 30 days. I'm looking what's happening in the market. I'm also looking what's um, you know, happening on the long-term horizon. And I can adjust everything, my pricing every 30 days. I can even do it potentially during the exact same day, like if I have like some sort of dynamic pricing model and all of a sudden I hit like 95% occupancy, the rest of my units, like they jump up like really high, right? I'm in demand, right? So those, um, you know, again, I, um, I look for investments that have all of those pillars to them. That is what's going to help me kind of hedge in any market um, and hedge inflation you know, long-term. Yeah, so it's a it's a, a an amazingly flexible um, and and neat opportunity, folks. When you're able to be on the other side of of the inflation, right, where um, we're not just stuck uh, paying for the the increase in cost, but when you have assets, as Whitney's describing, where you're able to in in almost real time adjust and enjoy that upside of this pressure that's pushing prices up, it's a nice uh, addition to and, and can significantly impact the bottom line on the investment. Um, I do want to add one thing because this, there is one thing that I left out that I think is extremely important. The number one thing though um, is also look at the debt mm-hmm. right now. We want to make sure that we can lock in um, you know, debt for at least the term of the project. Okay, and in multifamily and self storage, you can secure, you know, interest only type debt. You can get SBA loans, but lock in those debt terms. Um, even if you, even if it's a floating debt rate, make sure there's some sort of cap on the rate that you can buy. Make sure there's an extension to those caps that you can buy. You know, should the market turn south and you need to wait a year or two to to exit, don't put yourself in a situation with just like an adjustable rate mortgage that can take off on you. Yeah, um, because again, you're the whole trick is the reason why this works is that you're you're either locking in your expenses or if an expense is going to fluctuate that you can't do anything about, like your taxes and insurance, you can pass that through. Yeah, so that ties into the next point I was going to to ask you about, where uh, you know everyone hears about syndications and passive real estates, but it's not. It's not all lollipops and rainbows, right? There's there's some I haven't seen a pro forma yet that didn't pencil, right? All of these pro formas look great on paper. Um, and I think to to Whitney's point, you've heard us talk on this show endlessly over the last, I'd say, six or seven months. Uh, about being just because there's a, a an entire generation now of folks that are only know one set of interest rates, right? They, they didn't know the other side of the paradigm. Uh, and some are arguing that we may never get back there. I would argue vehemently that we will. Um, when looking at these opportunities, uh, paying a few bucks more now to 
get to the other side of the rainbow, if you will, to get that project to completion is one of the absolute most important things. And when you're looking at pro formas, folks, if they're they're dependent on two, three, four liquidity events uh, and the rates are at today's rates, but we're four or five years down the road, yet the pro forma is banking on 30, 40, 50% appreciation in rent, something is wrong, right? So what are some of the things, Whitney, folks can look at or keep an eye out for? What are some of the red flags when selecting a syndicator or selecting somebody to work with uh, to help them grow their passive portfolio? What are some of the things they should keep an eye out for? Yeah, so I'll go through as many as we can possibly go through um, because there's a lot. Um, you know, the number one thing when you invest in a syndication, you're investing in an operating business. So you're not, and, and I know investors that are really new to this type of passive investing, they're, or they're coming from single family investing where they were the operator, they're looking at the deal. They want the deal. They want the numbers. They want the return. But you're, you need to switch your mindset to bet on the jockey, not the horse, right? So the, the operator is the deal. And so you want to be with a good, a reputable operator. So do they have the track record in business? It's more specifically in real estate. Um, if they uh, do, do they have exits? How did they, the exits perform to the initial performa? Are there more than one partner? involved? Do they have a team built out underneath them? Are they investing full-time? Are they working full-time in the business? Um, you know, just asking all these questions about who they are, what do they do? What's their strategy? What is, you know, um, what are their preferred lending terms? How do they handle their exits? Do they have multiple exits on a deal? You know, really getting to understand the, the core fundamental business. But when you get that deal in front of you, you need to double check everything that that operator said to make sure that it holds true. And so that can be a little trickier, right? Because the operator is taking data and then, you know, the, the operate offering memorandum in that pretty document that gets put out, it's a marketing package, right? right? So you need to go in and double check the work, make sure they dotted their I's and crossed their T's. So a lot of that is looking at the trailing 12 um, financials from that the seller will provide. And looking at what the operator's projecting, especially in year one, um, to make sure that there's some reasonable assumptions taking place. Um, you know, are rent increases being conservative, right? They may be able to achieve 10 to 15% rent, rent increases. Maybe they're buying from a developer, right? Developers are not, are kind of notorious for, you know, putting butts in seats and not optimizing to market rent. However, I want to see, even if that is the business plan, I want to see an operator, you know, conservatively underwrite that in the numbers, not say, oh yeah, I can get 15%. Okay. But they underwrite seven, right? Maybe half that. Um, vacancy, are they underwriting, you know, vacancy um, to more than market rate? We saw a lot of people get stuck by that during COVID. They had underwritten their projects to market vacancy. Well, guess what? COVID, people didn't move, but they stopped paying. Yep. What happened, right? We had economic vacancy. Um, you know, expense increases. I, you know, sometimes you can look at a performance and you're just like, they aren't, taxes aren't increasing the whole five years that's yeah. being held. No way, not happening. Something's wrong there. 
<laughs> and the cities want their money for sure. Um, you know, and just other variable, you know, um, you know, expenses like, you know, uh, your full-time employees, right. You might be able to optimize your, the employment on the particular, on the premise. However, they're going to expect raises over time too. So you want to see numbers climbing, um, expenses increasing, you know, over time as well. So those are just kind of like a you know a few things to to really take a look at, um, and then look at the you know the debt line um, if they're um, you know if they are, have to do a refinance at year three, did they put all those costs into their pro forma? I've seen pro formas where those costs weren't included. Well, that's part of the project. Where did it go? Right. So, um, you know, there's just some things you need to really kind of dig into the numbers and make sure things are being conservatively, conservatively underwritten. I'd rather be under promised and over delivered personally. Yeah. And, and as as you're you're doing this type of of diligence, you start to press those boundaries of being an active investor, which is why it is so important if you're passively investing to have the right partner, the right syndicator on the other side of the table. Uh, as as Whitney's calling these things out, I'm thinking of pro forma after pro forma where you're seeing skyrocketing rents, but you're not seeing commensurate increases in expenses, right? You're seeing these liquidity events, again, that are predicated on rates today, not rates for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and many times, candidly, folks, these things are not readily available on that surface package you have to you have to do some investigating to get there um and and not everyone is as reputable and as forthcoming as we'd like for them to be right uh mm-hmm. and and there's a potential we've seen raises two five eight ten million dollar raises that have closed out in what feels like hours but is more like a day or two um on just flat out faulty information. Mm-hmm. It's a scary. It's a scary prospect, and and uh, as folks are are trying more and more, I think to reach for this true passive investing lifestyle, uh, these are great things to keep an eye out for. Whitney, I know you have a, a, another um, engagement coming up, so before I let you go, really quickly for you, passive or active investing, what what gets it done for Whitney? <laughs> I, I do both still, <laughs> but um, you know, I, when I look at the core of my portfolio and what gives me um, the time, you know, financial freedom, financial, you know, or like time freedom, it's the passive piece. I, I um, now, now that my passive portfolio is built up as such that it, you know, it, it affords me to do what I want, what I want, with whom I want. Now I get to play. Right. Yeah. I get to, I get to, I get back to that vitality. Right. Um, it, and it was, you know, being happy in the journey too. Right. Like I, I built that in along the way. I didn't wait until, you know, we had the financial freedom to like all of a sudden enjoy life. I built that in along the way, but, um, you know, that I still play actively. My husband, I drive my husband nuts. I'm still, you know, uh, looking at, you know, single family properties for short-term rentals that we can go like visit and stuff like that. He was like, Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a, a wonderful, you know, problem to have, right, is having those extra properties to go visit. Whitney, congratulations on just an immense amount of success, really outstanding. What's the best way for folks to find you? 
Yeah, absolutely. You can find me at passiveinvesting.com. I do have a landing page there um, at Passive Investing with Whitney that has some free goodies for everybody on it, um, a checklist and a soon to be released ebook. You can also schedule time with me to talk one-on-one, anything real estate. I'm happy to do that as well. And uh, yeah, you can also find me on LinkedIn, but passiveinvestingwithwhitney.com is the best place. Perfect. Whitney Elkins Hutton, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for the time. It was an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much, James. Be well. Everyone out there, as always, stay safe. <laughs>